Amen. Thank you. Let's take our Bibles, please, turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 tonight, and as you know, I've been studying through the book of Mark along with the other Matthew and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, and just touching on some of the stories as I go. And so tonight we'll be in Mark chapter 6, and we'll just look at six verses tonight, and we'll not keep you real late, and uh, I would... Uh, I think we'll still have daylight when we leave. Just be careful. Our, our parking lot lights are out right now. And so we will just be careful when you leave. If it is dark, Wednesday night especially, just let me caution you when you come. Just when you leave, watch out for the little ones, especially in the parking lot. It probably will be dark by the time we leave on Wednesday night. Mark chapter 6 tonight. Let's look there. Mark chapter 6. I was reading this passage this week and I was thinking of it in a couple different aspects. And you know, we're not supposed to really imply or uh, apply our reasoning on top of the scriptures. In other words, we don't say, well, here's what I think and let's find what the Bible says to match up with my thinking. It should be the other way around. The Bible speaks to our thinking. It changes what we believe and we are to apply ourselves according to the scriptures. And so I don't mean to say that I was doing that, but I, as I was reading, a couple thoughts popped into my mind about the timeliness of Mark chapter 6. As we think about what, what is going on in Mark chapter 6, and we'll see it in a moment, I couldn't help but think about revival and how in this passage we will see tonight that the Lord did not many works there because of their unbelief. But I think there's a, a bigger thing that's going on in these few verses that we need to understand in order that we do not quench the fires of revival. Here, here's what I believe. I believe that God wants to work. Amen. Nobody else believes that, but I believe that. I believe that God desires to do a work in the heart of his children. I just believe that. I believe that God wants to work in his churches. You say, why is that? Because the Lord says, I am not willing that any should perish. And in order for people to be saved, he wants us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But in order for that to take place, we have to be a healthy, thriving church that is gospel-centered and faithfully going out and telling others about Jesus. But how many of you know that never happens if we're just inward and all about ourselves and not healthy spiritually? Uh, it's something that has to spill over. It has to be natural, and we have to be faithful in telling others about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we think about this passage tonight, th those thoughts came to mind, and we'll make some of those applications near the end. I I'm going to just be honest with you. I'm gonna, I only have three points tonight, and the first two will be done in about three minutes. Don't get excited. Don't close your Bibles. We'll spend more time on that last point, all right? And so I just want to caution you not to be heading out to Wendy's before we're done. So let's look at Mark chapter 6 tonight. And he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hand? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country." and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work, 
save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd help us tonight. Lord, may the Spirit of God speak to our hearts. Lord, again, as we've already prayed, and Lord, what a blessing to hear the the whispers of people praying all over this auditorium tonight. Lord, I pray that it wouldn't be just words, but Lord, it'd be from the heart. And Lord, that we went boldly into your throne room and that you would hear our cries and know our desire to see you work in our midst. Father, I pray that you'd unfold this passage before us and help us to understand it. Speak to our hearts, but we need the Spirit of God to show us. So I pray that you'd fill me and fill each one of us. I surrender to thee. Lord, we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible says he went out from thence and came into his own country. The book of Mark doesn't tell us, but Matthew does, that it's the town of Nazareth. We know the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, was born in Bethlehem and with his parents at around the age of two fled into Egypt for safety out of the hands of Herod, who was killing all the children to and under, trying to get that Christ child. The Bible says he would return after a a short time after Herod had died and he would return into his own country, a place called Nazareth, and there he would be raised until adulthood. As the Bible tells us in Mark chapter 6, he would return to this place and he'd begin to do miracles and he'd begin to heal people, but the Bible says they were skeptical. They did not understand what was going on and they began to question some of the things about Jesus. And if I could just summarize the whole sermon in just a couple minutes in case you happen to doze off early tonight. Jesus did a lot of mighty works. He was filled with a lot of wisdom. But the people, in their own human reasoning, somehow explained it all away. And Jesus didn't do anything for them as a result. The sad thing is, is that sometimes we do the same thing. We see God working in little pockets over here and we become skeptical and say, well, is that really the work of God or are they just emotional? Did that person really get saved? We've heard that profession of faith many times before. Well, we saw them baptized, we'll never see them again. Now that they made a profession of faith and they believe they're going to heaven so they don't have to come to church anymore. And we're kind of a cynical type of people sometimes. And we see that that's not a new thing. We see it in the Bible, in the book of uh, Mark right here tonight in the town of Nazareth. As people were cynical about works that were taking place in other people's lives. And as a result, God didn't work in their lives. I'm reminded of six years ago in 2017 when we had a revival in this place. And I remember 32 people accepted Christ as their Savior over the course of a day and a half. And over that next several weeks, we baptized many people. Eight weeks in a row, we baptized folks and they joined the church. And as far as to my knowledge, all but one are in church still today. It wasn't just a flash in the pan, but it was a lasting time of revival. I remember Wanda Brown getting saved that night and baptized shortly after, and others like her. Amanda was baptized, and, and uh, Callie was baptized at that revival meeting, and, and just on and on and on. We, Kyle Norton was in church this morning, and that was the night that when I walked out in the hallway, I, I stuck my head out in the hallway from the men's baptistry to look down the hall to see if the ladies were ready, and Kyle was standing there in tears. And he says, Pastor, I need to get saved. And I led him to the Lord in chest waders and that white gown that I wear. Never happened before. 
And he says, well, now I need to get baptized. I said, I haven't got time to disciple you on baptism. I, I can talk to you after. I'm going in there right now. He says, I know what it means. It's just a, a picture of our faith. It's a profession of what Christ has already done in our life. It identifies us with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. He said, I was there when my dad was discipled about baptism with Pastor Bach. And then he, he said, I remember when he got baptized. And I know what it means. And, and Cindy was walking down the hall. And she says, I, I said, well, I'm out of gowns. She says, I've got shorts and T-shirts from the gym class. I said, grab them. And he was baptized that night. But I also remember some that were skeptical. And I'm going to be honest with you, sometimes I'm that way. I think, well, I wonder, is this really a move of God? Is God really working in that life? And time will tell. I just want to be honest with you tonight. It's not our job to sort that out. That's up to God. The wind bloweth where it listeth. God will work where he wants to work and the spirit will move as he wants to move and, and he can touch a life in the pew right beside you and you not feel a thing. He could be dealing with somebody tonight about a need in their life and their heart is moved and some are in grief and some are in sorrow and others are rejoicing and others are noticing prayers being answered and God is working in their family in a marvelous way and you sit here tonight wondering, is it real? Does God still work like that? Well, that was kind of what was going on in the city of Nazareth. The Lord Jesus Christ came to the temple there, or the synagogue there, and he took the scrolls and he began to read. It says in verse 2, when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue and many hearing him were astonished. Notice the word many. A lot of people liked what he had to say. They were astonished at what? Saying, from whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him? When you say somebody has wisdom, that's not an insult. They were not tearing him down. They're saying, where has he got such wisdom? This man, the, the, we're astonished at what he is saying and some of the wisdom and the works that were going on. But then others begin to deride the whole situation. Is this not the carpenter's son, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph? So just by way of having an outline tonight, let me give you, first of all, some significant observations. The people made some significant observations. They marveled at his wisdom and they marveled at his works. That's initially where the work of God starts, isn't it? We come to church and we're overwhelmed by the Spirit of God as it comes from the Word of God. God speaks to our heart and sometimes we don't even understand what is going on in that moment, but the preacher gets up and preaches and, 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 and just begins to move and, and the Spirit of God is pricking our hearts and pricking our hearts. Brother Bauckham, I can't help but remember going to revival service at your church. And uh, you might not remember this, but you were sitting on the front row and I was sitting right behind you. And about five minutes into the message, you pulled out a hanky and wanted to surrender and I wanted to crawl under the pew. I just remember the Spirit of God moving in that place that night and the power of God was in that place. And it was Brother Tom Gilliam. He preached before you many times. And as he preached that night, God began to speak and to move. And, and it, we, do, we don't always know when that is going to happen, but it starts with the Word of God being preached. And as the Word of God speaks to our hearts, we begin to marvel at who Jesus is. Friends, let me say this. That's what Bible preaching ought to do. Point us to the Savior and make us marvel at his works and marvel at his wisdom. A story is told of the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which was just a building. 
And it housed, they called it, they, they said the Baptist Church in London, England, but it met in the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Charles Spurgeon was the pastor, and he was away, and they had a guest preacher, and this preacher came in, and he was so eloquent, and he spoke, and, and as he spoke, people were in t- uh, just hanging on every word, and people left the auditorium that day, and they, they were saying one to another, what a magnificent preacher, what an incredible preacher. The next Sunday, Pastor Spurgeon came back, and he preached that morning, and people left the service saying, what a marvelous Savior, and what a wonderful God. And that's what we desire, to point people to the Lord Jesus Christ. As Jesus was in the synagogue that day and he opened up the scriptures and he began to teach from the word of God, people must have looked at him and thought, is he the one? He speaks with such authority and such wisdom and from where comes this wisdom and all of his wisdom and all of his works was intriguing and they, they wondered at the source of it all. I wonder if they had dwelled on that thought instead of becoming cynical, what God might have done in Nazareth. What revival might have taken place? Can you imagine if verse 2 was the end of the story instead of verse 3 coming in? When they began to question his pedigree and his parentage, begin to wonder about him being the carpenter. He's just a carpenter. That was an insult. We don't consider it an insult, uh, talking about a man's job, but they were saying he was lowly. He wasn't from noble birth. He didn't have any prestige, but his pedigree, he's a carpenter. And isn't Mary his mother and Joseph and Judas and Simon his brothers and aren't his sisters here among us? He is just common folk that grew up with us. He is like one of us. And who does he think he is? So not only did they make some significant observations, we see some sarcastic accusations. Simply put, they were cynical about who Jesus was. The word cynical, I I looked it up. I hear that word a lot and I wanted to make sure I understood it. So I, I looked it up. I'll just be honest with you. Cynical means to be contemptuously distrustful of human nature and motives. They looked at him with squinted eyes and they wondered, who is this guy? We know his mom, and we know his brothers, and we know that he's a carpenter. So why does he think he has all this wisdom and power? What gives him the right to teach here in the synagogue today? He's not a rabbi. He's not a Pharisee. He's not a Sadducee. He's not a doctor of the law. He's not a scribe. And yet he speaks with such wisdom. What gives him the right? There was an accusatory tone in their voice as they questioned who he was but I want you to see tonight and here's where we're going to stop for a moment not only did they make some significant observations and some good observations marveling at his wisdom and his works and they also made some sarcastic accusations and they questioned his parentage and they questioned his pedigree but I want you to notice some serious consequences I believe with all my heart had they stayed in that place of wonder and awe Jesus would have done a lot of great things in Nazareth. But because they slipped into this cynical attitude, questioning the work of God, there were some serious consequences that took place. Notice, first of all, in verse 3, the crowd's doubt. The crowd's doubt. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And look what it says next. 
and they were offended at him. The Bible uses the word offended or offense very differently than we do today. We, we think of the word offended and it means I got my feelings hurt. Something bugs me. They ticked me off is maybe a way we would put it today. I just got upset when they said that. that just, that's an offense to me. By the way, there's a verse for that in the Bible too. Great peace have they which love thy law and nothing shall offend them. But the word offend here means to be led into sin. To cause a stumbling block towards another. Think about it in that context tonight. This crowd's murmuring and complaining and questioning the very work of God caused a stumbling block for others in the church. Picture this with me if you would. If you were to come to church here on the Sunday morning, and, and by the way, we had some visitors this morning. We had a, a couple, Terry and his wife, and uh, she's from Jamaica, and he was from Trinidad. And we got to visit with them a little bit, and nice folks. And we had some others. Uh, Carolyn Rutenbeek's sister and her children were here from North Bay. And we had some others that were visiting with us, and it was so good to see them. But can you imagine if those visitors came in, and all they heard was murmuring around the hallways, well, you know that, that Parlene family, they just joined the church, and I know they say they're saved, but how, who makes them think that the, the power of God is upon them, and he touched their lives, and he saved them? Do you think the visitors would want to come back? That guy over there, he, you know, he, he just thinks he's so smart, and he teaches that Sunday school class, and Oh, I, I could preach a better message than him. I, I could preach better than the pastor. And I, I know the Bible inside out and backwards. And I, I don't like the idea of him having authority over me. Do you think those visitors would want to come back? That's exactly what was happening in the synagogue of Nazareth. People began to say, who does this Jesus think he is? He's just a carpenter. That's his mom right over there. He's not some great prophet. We know his brothers. We, we grew up with this guy. We played ball in the streets with him. Who does he think he is? But he speaks with wisdom. But should we trust it? That's what cynicism is. They were cynical about Jesus and they, the Bible says they were offended. And they caused an offense and they put a stumbling block. Can you imagine what their children heard? You know, sometimes we come home from church and we complain about every little thing. Let me warn you, your children are listening. Your kids are watching. Uh, sometimes they, they see not what you're saying, but they'll just see what you're doing. You stand in church and... Oh, Jesus... Boy, mom and dad really love Jesus. Boy, that's something to get excited about. Look how my parents love the Lord. The kids from Nazareth, all they heard was in bad-mouthing the Lord. Do you know the Bible says, let me rephrase that, Jesus said that if you offend one of these little ones, It'd be better if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea.
your kids will know you're not perfect. They'll know that. They'll see your blunders and your mistakes. But let them see you love Jesus. Let them never question your devotion to the Lord. Let them see you worship. Let them see God work in you. Always. They offended many, and I'm afraid they offended their children. Listen, I I looked up that word offense, too, because I wanted to be careful about this. To cause a person to distrust and to desert one whom he ought to trust and obey. It's almost as if they said, don't trust Jesus. Don't listen to him. They're complaining and they're whining, turned other people off. It also means to see in another what I disapprove of and allowing it to hinder me from acknowledging their authority. I don't like him, so I'm not going to listen to him. Be careful when it's God-ordained. What caused this? Number one, their human reasoning. They reasoned their belief. They thought they were smarter. They reasoned it away. They looked at the circumstances around Jesus and they looked at his pedigree and his parentage and they said, this can't possibly be a prophet. Why should we listen to him? They had even witnessed his miracles and they heard his wisdom and they tried to explain it away. But it wasn't just human reasoning, it was their heart's resentment. I believe they were jealous of what someone they grew up with had accomplished. Why is he any better than us? You know, I think all of us at times go through what their heads and their hearts were being offended and and we we go through what the people of Nazareth go through from time to time. Why should I listen? Why should I follow? Why should I obey? But here's the sad thing. Not only was there the crowd's doubt that causes them to be offended, I want you to see Christ's dismay. Christ's dismay. Not only did they hurt those around them, they hurt the Savior. Notice what he says in verse 4 of chapter 6. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. Without honor, it sounds like, well, they just didn't put me on a pedestal. They just didn't applaud me. They just didn't make a big deal about me. But it means so much more than that. This is a negative participle in the Greek. And it literally means they despised him. It doesn't mean, when he says without honor, he, he is not, he's not saying that, that they just didn't lift me up. He's saying they stripped me of all honor. They despised me. They hated me. They cast me aside. They did not want to listen. That's how the Lord was feeling. This was more than just people not listening to what he had to say. They actually railed against him. They pushed back. By the way, they didn't have to say it out loud. Although the Bible says they were saying these things, God knew their heart. And he could see it within them. He was despised, he was disheartened, 
Verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief. They marveled initially at his wisdom and his works, but he marveled because they had seen his wisdom, or heard his wisdom and seen his works, and they still didn't believe. He was disheartened over it. So much so, he was despised, he was disheartened, and he was deterred. Look at verse 5. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. Deterred means to be steered away from a course of action. Everywhere Jesus went, he healed people. He preached to people. He saved people. He loved people. But in Nazareth, it says he could not do mighty work there. He laid his hand on a few sick folks. Compassion on some that looked at him and he knew that they had faith and so he touched them and healed them. But for the most part, he was deterred. He did nothing. Here's our application as I think about revival this coming week. I want to be in a place where God can work. Number one, I don't want to be an offense to anybody. Now, sometimes we offend in our sense of the language, sometimes even by accident. We don't mean to. We, we share something we think is funny and somebody else just doesn't get it. Sometimes we do something, we, we say something, we didn't even know there was other circumstances going on and we caused an offense and we didn't mean to. But that's not what I'm talking about. I don't want to be a stumbling block to anybody seeing Christ. I want to stand in that way. You say, well, how, how can you be a stumbling block? When I come in and God is doing something in a service and I become cynical about it, I become critical. Well, that guy's been down at the altar every night of revival and he's down there weeping and he's down there. I, I, why, why doesn't he just go home and pray at home? And why doesn't he get his... Man, listen, we've been here for two hours already and they've extended the invitation because of that guy. Hey, why don't you go down there and see if God will give you something? Why don't you try getting on your face and pleading for your family and pleading for the one... Maybe go pray with that fella. Maybe he's just begging God to move. What about this? What if he was down there praying for you? Would you want him to stop then? We can be an offense and a stumbling block when we become cynical about the work of God. Listen, don't, don't come next Sunday and don't come next Monday and don't come next Tuesday and don't come next Wednesday just to get out of church. Don't sit there looking at your watch. If God is working, let him work. Let him move. Don't be an offense. But secondly, don't despise the Lord. You say, well, I, I, don't, I don't despise. I love the Lord. Really? I think sometimes I despise the Lord when we're worshiping God and, and my heart's just not there. And I do just like what I just imitated before you a moment ago. Oh, how I love Jesus. Mm -hmm. I've heard that hymn a thousand times. I love it. I'll be honest. Years ago, 
Marvin Masker would pick the songs for the service. He says, here's the songs you're going to lead tonight. I'd say, okay. And I'd look at him and I'd say, oh man, when were you born? 1850? That song is so old and dusty. Some of the most precious songs to me now. Songs that have doctrine and songs that have meaning and songs that have heart. But I remember going through the motions more than once. And I despised the Lord. And I wondered, why is God working in other people's lives, not mine tonight? Why is the Spirit moving over here, but I'm not feeling it or sensing it? Because I came with an attitude, a cynical spirit. God's not going to work in this little church. God's not going to move in this sermon. God's not working in this song. And I despised the Lord, and as a result, he was disheartened and deterred from working. I understand that just because we have a special service and we invite a quartet and we bring in a preacher and we put the word revival on the top of it doesn't mean we'll have revival. But when we focus our attention on something like that, it is our hope that we will pray more, that we'll prepare more, that we'll come expecting God to work in a special way. But I learned from this passage this thing. When I despise the Lord, he doesn't want to work. It's not that he can't. He still healed a few sick. And there would still be some that get a blessing from the Lord. But what about you? Do you want it? Somebody said this. The only reason we don't have revival is because we don't want it bad enough. How badly do you want it? I would dare say the people of Nazareth could have used a revival. Their hearts kind of show that. But they dishonored him, and he withdrew. We are not a perfect church, not a perfect pastor. I love, love, love. I love leading singing. I just, that's one of my favorite things to do. And I know I'm not perfect at it. And it's funny, it doesn't matter what church I've ever visited or any church I see online or anything, they all say, well, we have Christ-honoring music. They'll put that right on their website. And their music's so far different than mine, and mine's so different than somebody else's. And we say, oh, it's all christ on." I don't even know what that means anymore. All I know is that in our heart, we're trying to honor the Lord the best we can, and we're not perfect about it. We don't know every, uh, I don't know, somebody said, well, that song has syncopation. I don't even know what that means. I can't find it in the Bible, in the Greek, Hebrew, Latin, or anything. I don't even know what it means. Somebody, I, I literally, they have explained syncopation to me 34 times and I still don't understand it. It's not in my Bible, so I don't care. All right? I said, well, that, that song had this and this song. I don't know anything about that stuff. Here's what I do know. If you're going to sit in the pew and be cynical and not sing from your heart, then you're not worshiping the Lord anyway. Amen? And so let's come with the right spirit. What would have happened in the city of Nazareth if just their spirit had been different? What if they had said, is not this the carpenter? Isn't it amazing what God is doing with a carpenter's son? Isn't it amazing what God has done with Mary's boy? 
He is the Christ. I believe revival would have broke out. And it's what we so desperately need. Heavenly Father, help us. Speak to our hearts. Lord, help us not to be that people that despise the Lord. But help us, I pray, not to dishonor you in any way, Lord, by choice or by accident. But help us to do our very best to be pleasing unto you. And help us, Lord, to set our sails to catch the wind of the revival of the Holy Spirit. Move in our midst, we pray. Lord, may we take this week to be committed to prayer, to seek the Lord and to come expecting him to do something Friday night, Saturday, Sunday through Wednesday. And Lord, we'll thank you for it. Lord, bless this invitation time. Move in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing a hymn of invitation. Brother Tony, you come and help us tonight if you would. As Brother Tony sings, would you come to this altar? Would you pray for revival? I know you've already prayed once, but you can't pray enough. Our theme in 2002, years ago, was push through in 2002. The word push stood stood for this. Pray until something happens. Pray without ceasing. So let's do that. Let's pray until something happens. Oh God, help me not to be the one that hinders revival, that causes offense to others, that causes Jesus to say, I don't want to work in this place. Don't let it be me.